Other family, the one he could not remember. When there was a knock on the door, the class and Mr Kirby all looked to see who was there. It was a year seven who had been sent to th- borrow a textbook and they had. And as he turned, Bod felt something stab in the back of his hand. He did not cry out, he just looked up. Nick Farthing grinned down at him, a sharpened pencil in his fist. I'm not afraid of you, whispered Nick Farthing. Bud looked back at his hand. A small drop of blood welled up to the point of where the, of the pencil had punctured it. Mo Quilling passed Bod in the corridor that afternoon, her eyes so wide he could see the whites all around them. You're weird, she said. You don't have any friends. I didn't come here for friends, said Bod truthfully. I came here to learn. Mo's nose twitched. Do you know how weird that is? She asked. Nobody comes to school to learn. I mean, you come because you have to. Bod shrugged. Not afraid of you, she said. Whatever trick you did yesterday, you didn't scare me. Okay, said Bod, and he walked down the corridor. He wondered if he'd made a mistake getting involved. He'd made a misstep in judgment. That was for certain. Mo and Nick had begun to talk about him. Probably the year sevens had as well. Other kids were looking at him, pointing him out to each other. He was becoming a presence rather than an absence, and that made him uncomfortable. Silas had warned him to keep a low profile, told him to go through school partly faded, but everything was changing. He talked to his guardian that evening, told him the whole story. He was not expecting Silas's reaction. I cannot believe, said Silas, that you could have been so, so stupid. Everything I told you about remaining just this side of invisibility, and now you've become the talk of the school. Well, what did you want me to do? Not this, said Silas, not like the olden times. They can keep track of you, Bod. They can find you. Silas's unmoving exterior was like the hard crust of a rock over molten lava. Bod knew how angry Silas was only because he knew Silas. He seemed to be fighting his anger, controlling it. Bod swallowed. What should I do? He said simply. Don't go back, said Silas. This school business was an experiment. Let us simply acknowledge that it was not a successful one. Bod said nothing. Then he said, it's not just the learning stuff, it's the other stuff. Do you know how nice it is to be in a room full of people for for all of them to be breathing? It's not something in which I've ever taken pleasure, said Silas. So you don't go back to school tomorrow. I'm not running away, not from Mo or Nick or school. I'd leave here first. You will do as you're told, boy, said Silas, and not a velvet anger in his darkness. Or what, said Bod, his cheeks burning. What would you do to keep me here, kill me? And he turned his heel and began to walk down the path that led to the gates and out of the graveyard. Silas began to call the boy back, then he stopped, and then he stood there in the night alone. At the best of times, his face was unreadable. Now his face was a book written in language long forgotten, in an alphabet unimagined. Silas wrapped the shadows around him like a blanket and stared after the way boy had gone and did not move to follow. Nick Farthing was in bed, asleep and dreaming of pirates on the sunny blue sea when it all went wrong. One moment he was the captain of his own pirate ship, a happy place crewed by obedient 11-year-olds except for the girls who were a year old, too older than Nick, and who looked extremely pretty in their pirate costumes, and the next he was alone on the deck, a huge dark ship the size of an oil tanker with raggedy black sails and a skull for a figurehead, was crushing through the storm towards him. And then in the way of dreams, he was standing on the black deck of the new ship and someone was looking down at him. You're not afraid of me, said the man standing over him. Nick looked up. He was scared in his dream, scared of the dead faced man in the pirate costume, his hand of the hilt of a cutlass. Do you think you're a pirate, Nick? asked the captor. And suddenly something about him seemed familiar to Nick. 
You're that kid, he said. Bob Owens. I, said his captor, am nobody, and you need to change. Turn over a new leaf, reform, all that, or things will get very bad for you. Bad how? Bad how? Bad in your head, said the pirate king, who was now only the boy from his class and they were in school hall. Not the deck of the pirate ship, although the storm had been abated and the floor of the hull of the hull pitched and rolled like a ship at sea. This is a dream, Nick said. Of course it's a dream, said the other boy. I would have to be some kind of monster to do this in real life. What can you do to me in a dream? asked Nick. He smiled. I'm not afraid of you. You've still got my pencil in the back of your hand. He pointed to the back of Bod's hand and the black mark the graphite point had made. I was hoping it wouldn't have to be like this, said the other boy. He tipped his head on the one side as if he was listening to something. They're hungry, he said. What are? The things in the cellar, the below decks, depends whether this is a school or a ship, doesn't it? Nick felt something beginning to panic. It isn't spiders, is it? He said. It might be, said the other boy. You'll find out, won't you? Nick shook his head. No, he said. Please, no. Well, said the other boy, it's all up to you, isn't it? Change your ways or visit the cellar. The noise got louder, a scuttling sort of scuffing noise, and while Nick Farling had no idea what it was, he was utterly and completely certain that whatever it would have turned out to be would be the most scary, terrible thing he had ever, would ever encounter. He woke up screaming. Bod heard the scream, a shout of terror, and felt the satisfaction of a job well done. He was standing on the pavement outside Nick Farling's house, his face damp from the thick night mist. He was exhilarated and exhausted, and he felt barely in control of the dream walk. Had he been all too aware that there was nothing else in the dream but Nick and himself, and that all Nick had been scared of was a voice. But Bod was satisfied. The other boy would hesitate before tormenting smaller kids. And now. Bod put his hands in his pockets and began to walk, not certain where he was going. He would leave the school, he thought, just as he had left the graveyard. He would go somewhere no one knew him, and he'd sit in the library all day and read books and listen to people breathing. He wondered if there were still desert islands in the world, like the one on which Robin Crusoe had been shipwrecked. He could go there and live on one of those. Bod did not look up. If he had, he would have seen a pair of watery blue eyes watching him intently from a bedroom window. He stepped into an alley, feeling more comfortable out of the light. Are you running away then? said a girl's voice. Bod said nothing. That's the difference between the living and the dead, isn't it? said the voice. It was Lisa Hempstock talking. Bod knew, although the witch girl was nowhere to be seen. The dead don't disappoint you. They've had their life done and what they've done. We don't change. The living, they always disappoint you, don't they? You meet a boy who's all brave and noble and he grows up to run away. That's not fair, said Bod. The nobody Owens I knew wouldn't have run off from the graveyard without saying so much as a fairly well to those who care for him. You'll break Mistress Owens' heart. Bod had not thought of that. He said, I had a fight with Silas. So, he wants me to come back to the graveyard to stop school. He thinks it's too dangerous. Why? Between your talents and my bespellment, they'll barely notice you. I was getting involved. There were these kids bullying other kids. I wanted them to stop. I drew attention to myself. Lisa could now, a misty sheep in the alleyway, keeping pace with Bod. He's out there somewhere and he wants you dead, she said. Him has killed your family. Us in the graveyard, we wants you to stay alive. We wants you to surprise us and disappoint us and impress us and amaze us. Come home, Bod. I think I said things to Silas. He'll be angry. If he didn't care about you, he couldn't upset him, was all she'd said. 
The fallen autumn leaves were slick beneath Bod's feet, and the mists splurred the edges of the world. Nothing was as clean-cut as he thought it a few moments before. I did a dream walk, he said. How'd it go? Good, he said. Well, all right. You should tell Mr. Pennyworth. He'll be pleased. You're right, he said. I should. He reached the end of the alley, and instead of turning right as he had planned off into the world, he turned left onto High Street, the, world that, the road that would take him back to Dunstan Road and up the graveyard on the hill. What? said Lisa Hemstink. What are you doing? Going home, said Bod, like you said. There were shop lights now. Bod could smell the hot grease from the chip shop on the corner. The paving stones glistened. That's good, said Lisa Hemstock. Now only a voice once more. Then the voice said, run or fade. Something's wrong. Bod was about to tell her that there was nothing wrong, that she was being foolish when a car with a light flashing on top of the came veering across the road and pulled up in front of him. Two men got out from it. Excuse me, young man, said one of the men. Police, might I ask you what you're doing out so late? I didn't know there was a law against it, said Bod. The largest of the policemen opened the rear door of the car. Is this the young man you saw, miss? He said. Mo Quillen got out of the car and looked at Bod and smiled. That's him, she said. He was in our back garden breaking things and then he ran away. She looked at Bod in the eye. I saw you from my bedroom, she said. I think he's the one who's been breaking windows. What's your name? asked the smaller policeman. He had a ginger moustache. Nobody, said Bod. Then, ah, because the ginger policeman had taken Bod's ear between the finger and the thumb, he'd given it a hard squeeze. Don't give me that, said the policeman. Just answer the questions politely, right? Bod said nothing. Where do you exactly live? Asked the policeman. Bod said nothing. He tried to fade, but fading even when boosted by a witch relies on people's attention sliding away from you and everybody's attention, not to mention a large pair of official hands, was on him then. Bod said, you can't arrest me for not telling you my ad name or address. No, said the policeman, I can't but I can take you down to the station until you give us the name of a parent, guardian, responsible adult into whose care we release you. He put Bod into the car, into the back of the car where Mo Quilling sat with the smile on her face of a cat who's eaten all the canaries. I saw you from my front window, she said quietly, so I called the police. I wasn't doing anything, said Bod. I wasn't even in your garden. Why are you bringing me, and why are they bringing you out to find me? Quiet back there, said the large policeman. Everyone was quiet until the car pulled up in front of a house that had been Mo's. The large policeman opened the door for her and she got out. We'll call you tomorrow. Let your mum and dad know we've, we've found, said the large policeman. Thanks, Uncle Tam, said Mo, and she smiled. Just doing my duty. And they drove back through the town in silence, Bod trying to fade as best as he could with no success. He felt sick and miserable. In one evening, he'd had his first real argument with Silas, had attempted to run away from home, had failed to run away, and now failed to return home. He could not tell the police where he lived or his name. He would spend the rest of his life in a prison cell or in a prison for kids. Do they have prisons for kids? He didn't know. Excuse me, do they have prisons for kids? He asked the man in the front seat. Getting worried now, are you? Said Moe's Uncle Tam. I don't blame you, you kids running wild. Some of you need locking up, I'll tell you. Bod wasn't sure if that was a yes or a no. He glanced out of the car window. Something huge was flying through the air above the car to one side, something darker and bigger than the biggest bird, something man-sized that flickered and fluttered as it moved, like the strobing flight of a bat. The gingerbread said, When we get to the station, best if you give us your name, tell us who to call to come and get you, and we can tell them we gave you a bollocking. They can take you home. See, you corrupt weight, we have an easy night, less paperwork for everyone. We're your friends. You're too easy on him. A night in the cells is that hard, said the large policeman to his friend. 
Then he looked at Bacchabod and said, unless it's a busy night and then we have to put you in some with some of the drunks, they can be nasty. Bod thought he's lying and they're doing this on purpose, the friendly one and the tough one. Then the police car turned a corner and there was a thump. Something big rode up onto the hood of the car and was knocked off into the dark. A screech of brakes as the car stopped and the ginger, bre- ginger policeman began to swear under his breath. He just ran out onto the road, he said. You saw it? I'm not sure what I saw, said the larger policeman. You hit something, though. They got out of the car, showing lights around. The ginger policeman said, he's wearing black. You can see it. He's over here, shouted the large policeman. The two men hurried over to the body on the ground, holding flashlights. Bod tried the door handles on the back seat, but they did not work. There was a metal grill between the back and the front. Even if he'd faded, he was still stuck in the back seat of a police car. He leaned over as far as he could, craning to try and see what happened, what was on the road. The ginger policeman was crouched beside a body, looking at it. The other, the large one, was standing above it, shining a light down into its face. Bod looked at the face of the fallen body, then he began to bang on the window frantically, desperately. The policeman came over to the car. What? He said irritably. You hit my, my dad, said Bod. You're kidding. It looks like him, said Bod. Can I look properly? The large policeman's shoulders slumped. Oi, Simon, the kid says it's his dad. You've got to be bloody kidding me. I think he's serious. The large policeman opened the door and Bod got out. Silas was sprawled on his back on the ground where the car had knocked him. He was deathly still. Dad's, uh, Bod's eyes prickled. He said, Dad. Then he said, you've killed him. He wasn't lying, he told himself. Not really. I've called an ambulance, said Simon, the ginger moustache man, a policeman. It was an accident, said the other. Bod crouched by Silas and he squeezed Silas's cold hand in his. If they had already called an ambulance, there was not much time, he said. So that's your career's over then. It was an accident, you saw. He just stepped out. What I saw, said Bod, is that you agreed to do a favour for your niece and frighten a kid she's been fighting with at school, so you arrested me without a warrant for being out late. And then when my dad runs out into the road to try and stop you to find out what's going on, you intentionally ran him over. It was an accident, repeated Simon. You've been fighting with Mo at school, said Mo's Uncle Tam, but he didn't seem convincing. We're both in 8B at Old Town School, said Mo, and you've killed my dad. Far off, he could hear the sound of the sirens. Simon, said the large man, we have to talk about this. They walked over to the car of the side of the car, leaving Bod alone in the shadows with the fallen Silas. Bod could hear the Tulu policeman talking heatily. Your bloody niece was used. And so was if you kept your eyes on the road. Simon jabbed his finger into Tam's chest. Bod whispered, they aren't looking now. And he faded. There was a swirl of dark, deeper darkness and the body on the ground was now standing beside him. Silas said, I'll take you home. Put your arms around my neck. Bod did, holding tightly to his guardian, and they plunged through the night heading for the graveyard. I'm sorry, said Bod. I'm sorry too, said Silas. Did it hurt, asked Bod, letting the car hit you like that? Yes, said Silas. You should thank your little witch friend. She came and found me, told me you were in trouble and what kind of trouble you were in. They landed in the graveyard. Bod looked at his home as if it was the first time he'd ever seen it. He said, what happened tonight was stupid, wasn't it? I mean, I put things at risk. More things than you know, young nobody Owens. Yes. You were right, said Bod. I won't go back. Not to that school and not like that. Maureen Quilling had the worst week of her life. Nick Farthing was no longer speaking to her. Her uncle Tam had shouted at her about the Owens' kid thing and then told her not to mention anything about that evening ever to anyone or he could lose his job and he wouldn't want to be in her shoes if that happened. Her parents were furious with her. She felt betrayed by the world. Even the year sevens weren't scared of her any longer. It was rotten. She wanted to see that Owens' kid, who she blamed for everything that happened to her so far, reeling in miserable agony. 
if he thought being arrested was blurred and then would conquer elaborate revenge schemes in her head, complex and vicious. There are only things that would made her feel better and even though didn't really help. If there was one job that gave Mo the creeps, it was cleaning up the science labs, putting away the Bunsen burners, making sure that all the test tubes, petri dishes and unused filter paper and like were returned to their places. She had only to do it on a strict rotation system once every two months, but it stood to reason here in the worst week of her life, she would be in the science lab. At least Mrs. Hawkins, who taught general science, was there collecting papers and gathering things up at the end of the day. Having her there, having anybody there was comforting. You're doing a good job, Maureen, said Mrs. Hawkins. A white snake in a jar of preservatives stared blindly down at them. Mo said, thanks. Aren't there meant to be two of you? Asked Mrs. Hawkins. I was supposed to be doing it with that Owens kid, said Mo, but I haven't seen, but he hasn't been to school in days now. The teacher frowned. Which one was he? She asked absently. I don't have him down here on my list. Bob Owens, brownish hair, a bit too long, didn't talk too much. He was the one who remembered all the bones of the skeleton in the quiz, remember? Not really, admitted Mrs. Hawkins. You must remember, nobody remembers him, not even Mr. Kirby. Mrs. Hawkins pushed the rest of the sheets of the paper into their bag and said, well, I appreciate you doing it on your own, dear. Don't forget to wipe down the working working surfaces before you go. And she went and closing the door behind her. The science labs were old. There were long, dark wooden tables with gas jets and taps and sinks built into them. And there were dark wooden shelves upon which were displayed a selection of things in large bottles. The things that floated in the bottles were dead, had been dead for a long time. There were even yellowed human skeleton in one corner of the room. Mo did not know if it was real or not, but right now it was creeping her out. Every noise she made echoed in the long room. She turned on all the headlights on, even the light on the whiteboard, just to make the place less scary. The room began to feel cold. She wished she could turn up the heat. She walked over to one of the large metal radiators and touched it. It was burning hot, but still she was shivering. The room was empty and unsettling in its emptiness, and Mo felt as if she was not alone, as if she was being watched. Well, of course I'm being watched, she thought. A hundred dead things in jars all around, all looking at me, not to mention the skeleton. She's glanced up at the shelves. That was when the dead things in the jars began to move. A snake with unseen, milky eyes uncoiled in an alcohol-filled jar. A faceless, spiny sea creature twisted and revolved in its liquid home. A kitchen, dead for decades, showed its teeth and clawed the glass. Mo closed her eyes. This isn't happening, she told herself. I'm imagining it. I'm not frightened, she said aloud. That's good, said someone standing in the shadows by the real door. It seriously sucks to be frightened. She said, none of the teachers even remember you. But you remember me, said the boy, the architect of our old misfortunes. She picked up a glass beaker and threw it at him, but her aim went wide and smashed against the wall. How's Nick? asked Bod as if nothing had happened. You know how he is, she said. He won't even talk to me. Just shuts up in class, goes home and does his homework, probably building model railways. Good, he said. And you? She said, you haven't been to school for a week. You're in such trouble, Bob Owens. The police came in the other day. They were looking for you. That reminds me. How's your Uncle Tam? Said Bod. Mo said nothing. In some ways, Bod, you've won. I'm leaving school. And in other ways, you haven't. Have you ever haunted Maureen Quilling? Ever looked in the mirror wondering if the eyes looking back at you were yours? Ever sat in an empty room and realised you're not feeling alone? It's not pleasant. You're going to haunt me? Her voice trembled. Bud said nothing at all. He just stared at her in the far corner. Something crashed. Her bag had slipped off the chair onto the floor. When she looked back, she was alone in the room, or at least there was nobody that she could see in there with her. Her way home was going to be long and very dark. 
The boy and his guardian stood at the top of the hill, looking at the lights of the town. Does it still hurt? asked the boy. A little, said his guardian, but I heal fast and I'll be soon as good as ever. Could it have killed you, stepping out in front of the car? His guardian shook his head. There are ways to kill people like me, he said, but they don't involve cars. I am very old and very tough. Bod said, I was wrong, wasn't I? The whole idea was to get to do it without anybody noticing, and then I had to get involved with kids at the school, and next thing you know, there's police and all sorts of stuff, because I was selfish. Silas raised an eyebrow. You weren't selfish. You need to be among your own kind. Quite understandable. It's just harder out there in the world of the living. We cannot protect you out there as easily. I wanted to keep you perfectly safe, said Silas, but there is only one perfectly safe place for your kind, and you will not reach it until all your adventures are over and none of them matter any longer. Bod rubbed his hand over the stone of the Thomas R. Stout, 1817-1851, deeply regretted by all who knew him, feeling the moss crumble beneath his fingers. He's still out there, said Bod, the man who killed my first family. I need to learn about people. Are you going to stop me leaving the graveyard? No, that was a mistake and one that we both have learnt from. Then what? We should do our best to satisfy your interest in stories and books and the world. There are libraries, there are other ways, and there are many situations in which there might be other living people around you, like the theatre or cinema. What's that? Is it like football? I enjoyed watching them play football at school. Football? Mm, that's usually a little early in the day for me, said Silas. But Miss Lipsko could take you to see a football match the next time she's here. I'd like that, said Bod. They began to walk down the hill. Silas said, we have both left too many tracks and traces in the last few weeks. They are still looking for you, you know. You said that before, said Bod. How do you know? And who are they? And what do they want? But Silas only shook his head and would be drawn no further. And with that, for the time being, Bod had to be satisfied.